Welcome to this podcast from the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin. My name is Dave Fisackley and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. As part of the celebrations for DTB's 60th anniversary, we have recorded a series of interviews with people who have been associated with the journal over the years, and these include some of the members of DTB's editorial board. In this podcast, I talk to Joanna Gerling, who is a consultant in obstetric medicine in North London and has been involved with DTB since 2006. Joanna talks about her clinical work and in particular the importance of supporting women who have long-term medical conditions and who are pregnant or are planning pregnancy and the need to ensure that they are prescribed the most appropriate medicines. We recorded this interview last year when services were still heavily affected by COVID and so there are some references to the impact of COVID. Well, thank you, Joanna. Welcome to this this grilling. Um, can I start off by asking you just to outline a bit about your background in medicine, um, tr- your training, and, and some of your early jobs? Uh, yeah, of course. So, um, so my background in medicine actually started with a science degree. I read natural sciences, uh, thinking I wanted to be a biochemist. But I fairly early on realised that I just love being with people and 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 love the clinical um, aspects of. Uh, what I hoped would be a enjoyable medical career. So I, I changed from natural sciences and qualified as a doctor a long time ago in the last century. So I did my training in Cambridge and London. And then when I became a doctor, I worked in Cambridge and London as well. Essentially, apart from a very um, exciting year when I worked in Soweto in, in South Africa uh, doing medicine, I've spent most of my uh, career in, in the southeast working in obstetrics and gynaecology, but always with a particular interest around medicine, which was why working um, in the township outside Johannesburg for a year, looking after people with uh, really uh, advanced medical conditions was so uh, inspiring. And then here I am now as a, as a consultant in, in West London. And your current title and role? <gasps> well, I have many titles. Um, right several roles but my uh, main job is, is as a clinician uh, I'm, I'm a jobbing hands-on doctor at heart and, and so I'm a consultant in obstetric medicine and in obstetrics and gynaecology and many people might not be familiar with the subspecialty of obstetric medicine it, it's relatively new but essentially I look after women who are pregnant who've either pregnancy with a medical disorder um, or have developed one during the pregnancy. So my main, um, yeah, my main clinical role is around obstetric medicine, but as well as being involved with DTB, which um, of course I love, I'm also um, setting up the newly commissioned maternal medicine networks. So there have been a cause for, for many years now to try and improve the outcome of uh, pregnancy in terms of mortality. And, and sadly, we know in the UK that pregnant women who are black or from other ethnic groups are much more likely to die in pregnancy uh, than white women. Uh, and that women uh, from the most deprived parts of our community are also much more likely to die in pregnancy. So the, the national remit has been to set up regional maternal medicine networks to try and make sure that all groups of women, all pockets of our society are getting the highest level of care for their medical disorders in pregnancy. So another role I have is being a clinical director for setting that up here in Northwest London. And then my other uh, role is around um, being the uh, lead for clinical research uh, in Northwest London. So part of the uh, National Institute of Health Research, 
network trying to uh, encourage all our healthcare professionals and uh, all our women to participate in, in clinical trials. So those three jobs mean I do work fairly full time um, and they all sort of complement each other so that hopefully it helps to improve the uh, the journey, the experience, the outcome for, for pregnant women. And and between those three very busy roles, what's the split? How much how much is clinical time? How much is setting up the networks and how much is research oh uh, yeah or, or is or is that impossible to say <laughs> it is quite a hard one uh, so officially i have one day a week um setting up the network and uh, four days a week doing clinical and like another day doing the the research but they all sort of um yes exactly they all yes. sort of overlap and and days aren't nine to five in medicine, are they really? Yes, NHS days as opposed to real NHS days. NHS days. And also they often um, intertwine. I, I start the morning doing one and I finish it doing another. So, yeah, they work very well together. And you, you touched on or you touched on the, the, the interest in medicines. What piqued your interest in, in the therapeutics aspect? So I, I think it's always been there, but it's become more intriguing as the years have gone by. And, and the main aspect that intrigues or, or frustrates me about, about medicines in pregnancy is the lack of information, the lack of evidence. It was more than 60 years ago, even older than the DTB, that the thalidomide disaster of, of an anti-sickness agent to, uh, for pregnant women causing uh, limb malformations in their babies um, came to light. And yet really we haven't yet developed a situation where we can effectively trial drugs in pregnant women. Pregnant women are still excluded from so, so many of the clinical trials. So I think one of my main interests around therapeutics and prescribing in pregnancy is the fact that how hard it is to do that on an evidence base and, and professionally and, and within the teams of people I work with, we, we develop and we share our clinical experience. But it would be really wonderful if we could um, make some progress in the um, evidence base for it, which is how my clinical research hat sort of fits in with my um, clinical practice hat. Because you were you were involved in an editorial we published several years ago on this very topic. You again referred to it in an editorial when we you wrote about the COVID uh, vaccines and the again the absence of evidence and the fact that women were excluded from from clinical trials is there any sign that this is changing um is is there any progress are we likely to see more more involvement of this particular population in trials yeah so i think and it was back in 2013 wasn't it i, yeah. I, I put that that um editorial about therapeutic discrimination adding uh pregnancy to all the other protective characteristics we have. Um, but I think there is sort of glimmers uh, of, of hope that, that things are developing. There's been a, um, some really uh, big funding, something like 28 million euros um, in a European Union funded um, project to uh, improve uh, understanding of prescribing in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, and most recently out of the University of Birmingham uh, locally, there's been a, a, a really positive and I think really optimistic uh, call for uh, the whole community to recognise the harm done by not prescribing uh, safely and effectively in pregnancy. That temptation for a woman to say, I won't take the, the medicine, I'll put up with the suffering, it's better for me if I have a relapse of my condition, 
um, which of course is not good thinking. Actually, it's much better for the baby from the mother's well. But that thinking amongst many women combined with the prescribing practice of many healthcare practitioners that it's probably better not to to make a prescription is a, a position that really we're hoping that this University of Birmingham publication uh, will drive us uh, forward to, to openly um, encouraging research that all new trials must include uh, women of childbearing age unless it's a very good reason uh, not to do so to include women in pregnancy as well. Um, and that by tackling some of the research concerns around insurance um, premiums that can go with setting up uh, clinical trials, I think we see some glimmer of hope that that people are beginning to recognise the importance of this and move forward. Uh, But I think it's possibly going to be a long journey. We might still be sitting here in, in a few years' time, David, having a similar conversation. So when you're when you're with your clinical role, seeing somebody who's pregnant and talking about their medicines, how do you explain to them that we don't know what the answer, you know, we have we haven't got the data. Is that a conversation that you have to have? And and if so, how how do you explain that to women? Yeah, it's definitely yeah, that, that question about whether what we know about a medicine and how we discuss it with women is a, one we have um, every day. I have to say, as I've got older, I found it easier to say to women and colleagues that I don't know. And I think the openness and honesty of, of having a discussion with a woman is, is generally appreciated. Uh, there's often evidence that we can pull on, even if it's not of the highest uh, quality. But I think for women to appreciate the possible impact for themselves and their baby if they don't take a medicine um, is also important. We're, we're weighing two things against each other. It's not a medicine or nothing. It's a medicine often a, a, or a relapse of her condition. And I think many women are really enthusiastic about taking part in clinical research. If there's an opportunity for them to um, uh, join a, a trial, many of them are very positive about doing so. So at the moment, we're, we're recruiting to a trial looking at two different medications for controlling blood pressure in pregnancy, both of which are, are, are relatively um, well-established drugs, but it's it's not clear which of them might be uh, better or safer. And that, that we're having very good um, uptake. So I think, as with most things with, with, with patients, that, that if you're open and honest with them um, and, and listen to what their concerns are and try and understand uh, what's important for them. These conversations usually um, go quite well. One of the things you've you've been particularly keen on and championed over the last couple of years is is a series of articles on supporting um, clinicians with information on prescribing before, during, and shortly after pregnancy. And, and we've got a whole series now on our website, thanks to your ideas. What would you say are the, the key messages you'd be keen to get across from that series to anyone who's, who's listening or watching this? Yeah, so I think that prescribing and pregnancy series, we're up to 10 articles either out in black and white or, or almost there. And I think as you uh, allude to that, that there are many common themes um, around uh, prescribing medication or taking medication, depending on whether you're the, the woman or the prescriber, that cross the spectrum of all the medical conditions our women might suffer. And I think probably the most important of those is for us all to understand that, that a healthy pregnant woman, a healthy woman coming into pregnancy, during pregnancy and after birth, is the one who's going to be most able to be the, the to carry the healthiest baby possible and to be the, the best mother that she can be. And I think, therefore, um, really supporting prescribers and women to um, use medicine safely 
is a really uh, key message from the articles. And I think the other key message I guess I'd like to emphasise is, is before she's actually pregnant, it's about planning pregnancy. Less than about a third of babies in the UK are actually planned pregnancies. Uh, and that might be okay for a woman whose health is good, but for a woman with a, an important medical condition, whether it's sickle cell or Crohn's disease or hypertension, it's likely that her pregnancy will go better if she can use reliable contraception and that she can access pre-pregnancy care from someone like myself or, or other people who have um, expertise in obstetric medicine so that she can understand the balance of medication before she conceives, she can make any uh, changes in, in her medicines that, that might be required. And she has a chance to reflect on the best choices for her before the pregnancy is already on its inevitable progress uh, through the nine months. So I think a, a big plea to anyone listening who cares for any woman of childbearing age or has any family members or friends of childbearing age is please use contraception uh, and please plan your pregnancy and as part of the planning, come and talk to an obstetric medicine uh, person about how best to uh, approach uh, a future pregnancy. So, and if you're taking any medicines on a regular basis because of a, a long-term condition, talk well ahead of getting pregnancy, getting pregnant, so that you can decide on what decisions you have to make early enough so that they can be done in, in good time. Yeah, absolutely. Women taking um, medication on a long-term basis will every month, every three months, be collecting their script from their pharmacist, from their GP, from their hospital doctor or nurse. And that's a really good opportunity for them to um, think about uh, the possible impact in pregnancy. And, and these things can change. The um, uh, At the beginning, sodium valproate was thought to be a fantastic uh, medicine for controlling epilepsy, which indeed it is. But it's only since its um, arrival that we've come to understand that not only does it harm or has the potential to harm the baby's developing spine and brain in terms of spina bifida, but can also impact on the way the baby's brain functions um, after birth. And so there are some women relying on, on medicines like sodium valproate who have really tough choices to make before they get pregnant. But those uh, choices are generally slightly less tough if they can share them with healthcare practitioners who can support them through understanding the pros and cons. And if they're using reliable contraception at that point, they're not in a already in a situation where, where their baby's developing inside them and they're getting increasingly concerned about harm. And do you think, I mean, we, we, we've had the sodium valproate story, which seems to have unfolded over the last I don't know, 10 years now in, in trying to get the message over and trying to make sure that every woman who is of childbearing age who is on it is reviewed and, and safely managed. But do you think stories like that, when they come out, fuel that position which you touched on earlier, which is, I'm not going to take anything. I'd rather risk a relapse than take a medicine that could, because I'm doing something that could harm my child by taking a medicine. If I stop taking the medicine, surely it's better. Is that is that still a common experience? Yes, I, I, it really is. And I think getting the balance right uh, uh, as to um, whether women stop or continue medicines is really tricky. Uh, almost every day, certainly several times a week, I'll see a woman with, with asthma who's stopped using her blue inhaler or her brown inhaler and is um, having a, a relapse with, and, and needing increased um, uh, treatment. Another common one is, is stopping my blood pressure tablet because it might be dangerous. So I think it's really important we try and, and give clear messages um, to women um, about which medicines uh, they should uh, stop, which they should switch, which they can continue. And, and as we also know, the although 
back in its day, DTB championed the, or at least pushed for the idea of, of information leaflets, even they are not ideal, are they? When you read the detail and what it says about pregnancy, they're not, they're not the perfect document yet, are they? They're certainly not. And, and, and the information leaflets or the information from the drug companies or the product um, details are, are often unhelpful. Um, but we do have a very good resource um, for users, for women and their families called, called BUMPS, the Best Use of Medicine in Pregnancy website. And that's a very um, accessible uh, website. So just type it into your, your search engine um, and it comes up with a list of almost all the medicines available in the UK. And it's got a, a, an easily accessible question and answer uh, format with the type of questions that women and their families are worried about. Well, will my medicine harm my baby? Will it cause a miscarriage? Um, will I be able to breastfeed taking my medicine? So I would recommend the best use of medicines and pregnancy website as a good starting point for anyone that wants to find out more about a medicine that they're taking in pregnancy or planning to take in pregnancy. Okay, we can add a link link to that in the uh, information that goes out with this, this podcast. So we'll, we'll we'll include that. Changing tax slightly, um, something we've picked up on and, and discussed over the last few months has been the move to more availability of medicines from pharmacies without prescription. We've had the progestion only contraceptive, uh, which is now uh, available from pharmacies without prescription. Do you think this is a good thing that we are encouraging greater self-care? Is it recognition that that perhaps women's health, you know, if you think about the things that are available, maybe more male focused up to now, that we've we haven't had the options for women? Is it a good thing? Um, yeah, I think that that topic of, of making uh, medicines that were prescription only uh, now pharmacy available in, in general, is a, it feels like a really positive thing. I think uh, many general practitioners are really stretched their resources. And I think many women are well informed and um, able to afford to pay for a medication that they might be able to get free through the an NHS prescription. And many pharmacists um, uh, are uh, very excited about extending their role or, or being able to um, make more medications available to, to women. So I think at one level, uh, uh, for a woman to be able to go into a, a chemist and buy a, a progesterone-only pill off prescription is a really great opportunity for her. But I think we also just need to think of the, the other group of women who maybe uh, can't afford to pay for their progesterone-only pill or their um, uh, vaginal estrogen tablets, uh, women whose um, English might not be so good um, and and just make sure that we're not inadvertently discriminating against them or, or removing services um, uh, from them uh, and make sure that we still maintain that, that free at point of access uh, through the NHS fundamental um, aspect uh, of the care we provide. But yes, overall, recognising women's health as being an increasingly important part of our society has got to be important. The more we talk about uh, contraception and the menopause, the more likely it is that it's going to filter through to everyone, uh, men and women, uh, in our society. I mean, I think the, I think you're right. From, from my point of view, when we responded to the consultations on this, one of the big concerns we had was, are we likely to disenfranchise some people who who will never be able to afford these um these these medicines and the pill which has always been free um suddenly it's it's going to be paid for um and for a lot of people who do get free prescriptions are we by creating um more interest in them likely to stimulate a broader debate about their about their use does it is this a conversation that you have with patients anyone ever 
ask about availability from pharmacies? Not specifically around the medicines that we've been um, discussing so far, but it is a very common thing in pregnancy that women use over-the-counter preparations. Uh, and, we, and we did a, a, a small piece of work a couple of years ago now, um, and, and more than 90% of our women, pregnant women, were going to the pharmacist or other outlets and buying vitamins um, over-the-counter, uh, simple analgesia, so it's quite a common thing that, that, that pregnant women are prepared to pay for uh, folic acid, for vitamin D, things that are recommended uh, nationally. But I, I still have just small concerns about that as well, because there are definitely some of our women who, who can't and don't uh, afford those buying them themselves. But in general, I think women do have a positive attitude to, to, to going to the, the pharmacist or the appropriate uh, aisle in their supermarkets to um, uh, pick up uh, over-the-counter medicines. And that just reminds me of an, another article that that uh, we were involved with a few years ago, which was the vitamins in in pregnancy article. Yes, is that still an issue? Because at the time we t- we talked about actually there are very few vitamins that you absolutely need to have during pregnancy if your diet is sufficient. So, you know, obviously folic acid um, and possibly vitamin D, but most other things, if you're eating reasonably you shouldn't need has that has that changed is there still a huge demand and and people buying all sorts of pregnancy specific vitamins oh david you've hit on one of my other real bugbears here these pregnancy specific vitamins back of the bus huge adverts telling women to buy very expensive branded pregnancy multivitamins um and, and you're uh, absolutely right the evidence base is that pregnant women need folic acid before they get pregnant in early pregnancy to reduce the chance of the baby having spina bifida there's reasonable evidence that they need a vitamin d supplement particularly if it's winter particularly if they're, they're dark skinned or covered to make sure there's enough vitamin d for their, their own bones and muscles and the baby's uh, bones and muscles there's a tiny amount of evidence in women on, on a very poor and very restricted diet in a very deprived part of East London, suggesting that it may uh, a multivitamin may help improve the outcome. But the rest of it has been clever marketing. Um, and women absolutely feel they're doing the right thing by buying um, a glossy packet full of, of glossy tablets. Um, I try when I can to point them to a healthy diet and, and the, the two vitamins that they need, folic acid and vitamin D. I feel it's a bit of an uphill struggle, and despite our wonderful article in and the um, the DTB, I'm not sure we've got the message out there yet. So save save your save your money and um, buy something that's important during pregnancy. Yes, I, I say to women, go and buy an avocado or, and some bananas. They're, you know, yeah. much more tasty and and much more nutritious, and much more South London. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, let's let's go back a bit f- to your early days with with DTB. I, in my detective work, I've been back through our archive, and I think I've pinpointed August two thousand and six as when your name first appears in the uh, credits on on DTB. Would that be about right? Yeah, that sounds about spot on. I, th- I think it was um, the autumn of two thousand and five that that Ike who was the um, DTB editor at the time, um, approached me. At that point, I'd been doing some work around uh, women who had an underactive thyroid um, and were taking thyroxine and and published some small um, uh, articles uh, suggesting that the standard guideline recommendation of automatically increasing the dose of thyroxine in pregnancy was not required and that for the majority of women with 
um, normal autoimmune underactive thyroid disease could just carry on on their normal dose of thyroxine if they uh, uh, entered pregnancy with a, a properly controlled thyroid. And I guess, uh, and Ike asked me if I would write an article uh, about uh, uh, that book, the DTB, which I uh, I did with some uh, excitement and trepidation. I, I was one of those um, junior doctors who, who'd grown up with drugs and therapeutics bulletin arriving very often in my um, pigeonhole for me to physically read. Uh, and I, I held DTB in, in great esteem and felt very honoured to be asked to write something. And hadn't quite appreciated at that point that that this would turn out to be such a long and uh, enjoyable uh, relationship. So, yes, more than 15 years ago now, um, uh, underactivity of thyroid gland in pregnancy. And tell me, when, when you submitted your article to DTB, did it come back with lots of red ink and suggestions for improvement? Or did it sail through without a change? <laughs> As I recall, it really was a piece of paper toing and fro. I yeah. can't quite remember, but I don't think we were electronic back in 2005. And to be honest, those details of how much red ink there was are slightly blurred, but I'm sure there would have been a, a, a lot of uh, constructive help and input from the editorial team uh, and the peer review process. And if I still find that now, whenever I, I write an article uh, or involved in reading other people's articles, that, that, that peer review feedback and the, the editorial uh, process uh, always uh, enriches and, and, and uh, helps develop the articles and makes them suited for the, the audience that, that, that we're covering. So, yes, I'm sure there were lots of developments in that article. Um, so 2005, 2006, when you started, um, obviously we've changed, DTB's changed over, over the years and evolved to what it, what it is now. So why? what keeps you still going? What's Is, is it, um, well, what, you tell me, what, what keeps you going? Uh, in drugs and therapeutics, policy, what keeps me going? Well, I... I... I guess there's lots of things that keep me going. Um, I think one is that sense that the articles that we write are are worth writing and reading, and that it's a uh, gives me gives us in, in DTB uh, just a, a different avenue to try and get our messages out. Um, and certainly around the prescribing in pregnancy articles in the series, and and more widely the things I've been involved with, I think it's felt really good to be able to through the uh, the BMJ and 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 through the readership of the uh, of DTB to reach an audience that perhaps wouldn't get those messages otherwise. And I think it's a very friendly um, group, and we uh, I think the the meetings we have where we bounce around ideas for new um, topics are, are always productive. Uh, and there's always learning. I think I just love the thing about being in medicine is, is that never a day goes by without you gaining more knowledge and more information and trying to keep on my toes. So um, I've really enjoyed the um, DTB editorial process and the way it's sort of grown during the 15 years that I've been uh, a part of it. And many more, one hopes, many more. Um, so in, in terms of you've, it's evolution of DTB over, over the time and your current focus on, and I think it has been a really good series on, on pregnancy, are there other themes or areas you'd like us or like DTB to, to champion next? Is there other particular topics or areas of interest that you think actually that would be a good, a good thing to focus on? 
So I think we've got a few just bubbling under at the moment, David, haven't we? New, new areas for us to, uh, to focus on. So I, I'm aware that most of my clinical life is around the obstetric end of obs and gynae. So I've been trying to sort of, uh, with my DTB hat on, make sure that the gynecology end of that spectrum um, is um, also uh, well supported. So um, we've got an article, um, I hope, coming fairly soon about some of the challenge, the latest challenges around um, hormone replacement therapy, uh, the shortages, potential role for testosterone um, uh, uh, in women going through the menopause, the alternative uh, formats of estrogen that have been developed. So I think um, menopause and the management of it went through a bit of a um, doldrums a few years ago when we, we had the clinical evidence that, that suggested that maybe women who took HRT were more likely to get breast cancer. Um, and that's now been um, more information has come out that's been revised. And, and um, certainly now in women who are close to the menopause and women who have got um, symptoms, um, there's a, a strong case for many of them uh, considering HRT. So I think getting some um, uh, more uh, articles around that area would be uh, really important. Just on that HRT issue, the shortages, is that something that's that your colleagues are struggling with at the moment? Are they how are they dealing with with the the very acute problem of of what you should be on, particularly the difficulties of changing women from one one type of HRT to another? Yeah, I think my colleagues are struggling uh, with that those HRT shortages, but I think even more than my colleagues struggling, it's it's that the users struggling, um, and, and I think. Um, it, it is a difficult time because the, the shortages, I guess, by the very nature, are, are, seem to be unpredictable. And uh, as you imply in your, your questioning, when women change from one formulation to another, there's not a, uh, or very often, there's not a um, direct uh, switch that, that can be guaranteed to be equally satisfactory for them. So there can be a, a period of trying to dose adjust uh, again. So I think it is is tricky for everyone involved with it. But but as usual, I think the um, many women in the UK are pretty resilient. Um, they they have an understanding of the uh, frustration, but the the lack of um, direct control that we as as prescribers have. Um, and and together we work through, or my colleagues and and the women work work through uh, the best solution for each woman on an individual basis. Uh, and probably harangue the pharmacist a little bit. Um, it's not the pharmacist's fault that, that he or she doesn't have it on the shelf, but it, it, it can uh, obviously be frustrating uh, at time when that much wanted and needed medicine is just not there. Yes, I think I think being at the end of the production line or the, the kind of the healthcare production line, I think the pharmacists have probably had a pretty tough time. Through no, as you say, it's not their fault. It's not the prescriber's fault. It's just the situation we're in. Um, but yeah, I think they have they have um, had some unpleasant experiences trying to yes. trying to manage. Them. Well, I had a very positive experience with the pharmacist when I went to get some antihistamine for my son, and there was none on the shelf. And when I asked him, he was very helpful, and I I would have kissed him, but you know, there was a glass screen in front of the way. So I think hopefully they get some positive feedback, pharmacists as well as um, negative ones. Yes, and that might have been pushing the interprofessional boundary just slightly, but uh, yes, well, I'm sure I have my mask. On. Uh, yes, I'm sure, I'm sure. So, so talking of masks, and just moving to the question that I've asked other 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 people, how much has COVID um, had? An, well, clearly it's had a huge impact, but in terms of how things have changed, are there any benefits or improvements that have resulted from from 
the last two years that, that you can put your finger on in terms of your your therapeutic areas or your practice, clinical practice? Has anything come out of this that's positive? Yeah, so what's positive in, in, in COVID from a maternity point of view? I, I actually think, and I am uh, interminably a positive person, that quite a few good things have come out of it, although clearly it's been incredibly difficult professionally and, and on the personal level, really um, catastrophic for some people. Um, but I think the positive things that have come out of it for, for us in maternity has uh, uh, been really enhanced working with our uh, emergency department, acute medicine, ITU uh, colleagues. Uh, there was a time last um, October where one in five of all people in hospital being ventilated with COVID were pregnant, uh, part, for many reasons, but partly because of the very mixed and unfortunate messaging that, that was sent out around COVID vaccination and pregnancy. Um, and so the positives that came out of that really difficult situation were, was uh, some real strengthening of personal uh, relationships with, with colleagues uh, in, in those areas, better understanding of prescribing issues. And, and those are uh, sustained now. The COVID pandemic seems to be um, uh, through its worst. Um, I think it's also helped us with virtual uh, consultations and, and, and virtual uh, input uh, for women. Nothing in a um, uh, context of, the, of caring for a patient to me replaces the actual sitting face to face and understanding the body language and being able to examine her. But there are circumstances where a quick virtual call can um, save the woman um, a lot of time, effort and money. And I think that's been a, a positive. Um, and I think the only other positive I would say out of COVID, and I'm, I'm talking a lot about it as if I think COVID was great, because clearly it wasn't great, it was awful. Um, but it also showed how we can make research happen when we need to. And I think that's been the other positive. It, it, it was professionally quite exciting to learn about a new condition and it was really wonderful to see the research wheels progress so quickly and that the, the process of developing and trialing the vaccines developing um, therapeutic agents and trialing them um, happened with a speed that is completely phenomenal and if we could translate just a tiny bit of that into developing uh, drugs for use in in, in pregnancy then then uh, we would be making some good progress yeah I, I agree and i think i think for me the exciting thing was as you said that speed the ability of the scientific community to come together to solve a problem quickly i mean i guess it was a very targeted problem it it, it had a kind of single point of you knew what the solution was we needed a vaccine whereas for other conditions you not necessarily know what the solution solution is you might be reaching for lots of things um and the other thing which i think i'm slightly guarded against people getting carried away with it had an awful lot of money thrown at it. And if you've got a blank checkbook and you're offering huge amounts of money, you will probably get results. Now, could we take that same approach to some very orphan conditions and throw money at those? Well, it'd be interesting to see. But but uh, yes, I have some some concerns that, that, that the, the expectation that we can re replicate COVID vaccine and antiviral success as easily will only happen if we throw money at it. Call me cynical. Never. <laughs> Joanna, thank you very much for your time today. And in the notes that accompany this podcast, I will add links to the Bumps website and to the articles on uh, prescribing for pregnancy that you have coordinated. And I certainly look forward to the next one in the series. Uh, many thanks for listening to this podcast. You can find all our 60th anniversary interviews and our regular monthly In This Issue podcasts 
on our website at dtb.bmj.com. Just click the podcast link at the top of the homepage. Please let us know what you think of our podcasts. We'd love to have your comments. You can leave us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. And there is a link to the DTB iTunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Or you can email us directly at dtb at bmj.com. And we'd be delighted to have suggestions for other topics that you think we should cover. Many thanks for listening.